Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. Back in Wisconsin, on solid ground, we're not in the van rolling. It does feel good to be back in lovely Wisconsin in March. Spring has sprung, it's a little warmer outside and that's exciting. Indeed, yes, that's always one of the exciting things about getting back from the Austin South by Southwest trip is by the time we get home usually it's, it's warm again. Springtime, yeah. So it's like one last, hurrah, like winter usually uh, gets you in the face one last time, like a little quick slap. Oh, I'm waiting for it. Yeah. I'm ready. There will be one more snowstorm before this winter ends, but that's okay. Yeah. We're we're ready for it. We got a new van that's ready to plow through. Woohoo! And it's blue like the mystery machine too. <laughs> so we're going to take it to play music and solve mysteries all around North Can't America wait. is the plan. Uh, with or explore the, mysteries. Yeah. Big, mysteries of the paranormal nature. We're going to roll big blue through your town coming up <laughs> soon. I hope so. Me too. You know, speaking of Texas, Wendy. Yeah. This guest coming up lives in Dallas. Oh, we could have dropped in and said hello. And that's, what I, was, <laughs> that's what I was thinking of. I was totally thinking that we should probably drop by his place. It's like, oh, we could have just stopped by there on Tuesday night. That would have been great. But uh, he was supposed to be at the Paradigm Symposium that we attended in May. Ah, yes. Loved that event. He was one of the, uh, he's going to be one of the speakers. His name is Nick Redfern. Mm-hmm. And he is a British author, lives in Texas. Um, okay. And he's covered every single kind of paranormal phenomena that you can imagine. I know you're a big fan, Mike, because you've told me about him many times in the past, actually, long before this interview yeah, happened, before the Paradigm event. Well, and one of the reasons that I love talking about him is because in his autobiographical works, he sneaks in like references to punk rock music all the time. Awesome. So he's always got some good reference to punk rock or party. And like he's... Cool. he's uh, <laughs> You know, he, he's into the same kind of things we are. So that's why uh, I always appreciate reading his works and getting him on the show is great. It was one of the highlights, I think, so far. And I think people who hear this interview are going to agree. Well, I, I can't wait any longer. Let's get down to it. All right. Well, uh, what, are you, what are you doing? Press play. Nick Redfern is the author of 40 books on ufology, cryptozoology, secret societies, conspiracies, and the paranormal. An incredibly prolific researcher and author, Nick usually contributes about two books a year to the field. We love Fortiana and all manner of unusual topics, so we are thrilled to welcome Nick to the podcast. Me and Allison, I want to thank you very much for joining us today, Nick. Oh, thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. And where are you talking to us today from? Uh, from Arlington, Texas, which is where I live. Just It's about, um, about 25 miles, 20 miles outside of Dallas. Okay, and and so for anybody who's listening and they're like, okay, I hear an English accent coming from a guy from Texas. <laughs> how how did you wind up near the Big D? Well, I actually got a, a job offer. Um, this was I've been here about seventeen years, and um, it was working for a, a publishing company, uh, put, putting books out, and I was doing sort of editing and research for them, and um, it was going to be like a, a two year long job altogether, and. Um, so I thought, you know, I didn't have any ties in the UK. I thought that'd be kind of cool. And so I, I came over and um, and liked it. And then just did all the whole immigration thing, you know, and um, went through that process. And 
So yeah, I've been here sort of uh, about 17 years, and the a lot of the work was based out of the Dallas area. So you know, it, it made sense to be there. So or here, <laughs> and um, so yeah, I like it around here. You know, it's sort of a, there's plenty to do and uh, good sort of nightlife and restaurants and all sorts of stuff. You know. So. Well, we're happy to have you here. You definitely increased our cool factor in the U.S., and, and we need help in that area very sorely right now. Allison does need a lot of help in that area. <laughs> no, but what I was going to say was, I mean, growing up in the U.K. and then coming to the United States, number one, I'm interested in how you got into the paranormal and Fordiana in the first place, and then also... Have you noticed different attitudes or, you know, what's the difference between, you'd say, maybe American Fortiana and UK weird stuff? Um, I think probably that's a good question. I think probably the biggest uh, difference is the fact that because, um, you know, the US is a, a relatively new nation, you know, going back several hundred years. I think the big difference is in the UK, there's still a lot of interest and research done into sort of, you know, events that occurred eight, nine hundred years ago, you know, like haunted castles and ghostly tales and, you know, legends of stone circles and all that kind of thing. So I think um, I think that's probably the biggest difference is the... Um, you know, the, the period of time that gets covered, um, you know, in terms of 14 research. Um, but that's just, you know, that's just due to the dif- the ages, in the different ages in the, in relation to the two countries. But, um, but I think in terms of what actually gets investigated, it really isn't that much different, you know, UFOs, lake monsters, strange creatures, ghosts. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty much the same kind of things, really. But, um, as far as how I got interested in all this, um, when I was about five or six, uh, my parents took me on a week's uh, vacation to Scotland, and we spent a day at Loch Ness, and uh, my dad told me the story of the Loch Ness Monster, and uh, as we sort of stood on the shore, and, you know, as a little kid, uh, that sort of got me all excited and fired up, you know, and... um, then as I got a bit older, you know, I started reading books by people like John Keel, you know, and Brad Steiger and people like that. And um, and really got that got me interested in the in the paranormal. But uh, and then when I finished school, um, I began working on a magazine in England called Zero, which is like an entertainment magazine for teenagers. And um, and, you know, I enjoyed doing that. I enjoyed sort of um, writing. And it didn't seem like a real job, you know. And I didn't have to wear a shirt and a suit or anything like that. <laughs> you know, and, right. Uh, and, which I hate doing. Um, and, um, and then after a while, I thought, well, you know, why not combine the, the two, you know, this, the, uh, the interest in the paranormal with the, um, you know, the ties with... Um, the the, the uh, UFO subject, etc. So that's really what sort of got me involved in it all. So it was Nessie at the start. It sounds like. Yeah. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, I'm so thrilled to be able to talk to you because you know Mike and I um, we're very into uh, historical research and uh, we have haunted history tours that we do in our local area. And uh, I've just always been enamored of your level of research that you do. You know, sometimes there are such extraordinary things 
uh, you know, that you are able to uncover uh, from documents that you find through your research. And I, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that. Like, how do you find sources? And uh, in terms of your finds, I mean, what have been the most surprising things um, to you as a researcher that you've been able to uncover? Um, well, in terms of how I sort of uncover things, I mean, it's sort of two ways. One would be, you know, just I I pick up on a story or, you know, there's a breaking news story and I think it's something that's worth looking into. So I'll sort of, you know, they'll go, then go looking for the answers. But in the same way that, you know, if it was a, a journalist working for a local newspaper investigating, you know, a local murder or something like that, you know, you just you follow the threads and the leads of the story. Um, but what very often happens, and this happens more than, the, than that approach, is that, um, you know, when you write books and articles and things like that and people read them, if they've had their own experiences, then they tend to contact you. For example, I've done three books on the Men in Black mystery, and so for people who've read the books and had their own experiences, I get a lot of people write to me about their encounters with the Men in Black, and then, you know, if it's a really cool story, I'll ask them, is it okay, you know, if uh, I do a like a more in-depth interview with you, and would you mind, you know, if I use it in the next book, and, you know, and so um, that is very often the way that I get onto stories because people approach me after having read the books. Now, as far as, um, you know, the the whole issue of um, sort of the more surprising and weirder things I've found out, uh, I guess more than anything else, you know, it's this issue of how government agencies get involved in a lot of weird stuff. I mean, everybody knows that various uh, governments around the world have investigated the UFO phenomenon over the years. But um, through the Freedom of Information Act, I mean, I found files on all sorts of really weird stuff, like how in the 50s um, the U.S. Army tried to figure out if um, dogs possessed ESP, because if they did, they wanted to train the dogs to try and psychically find um, minefields uh, or mines on, you know, on battlefields, that kind of thing. Um, you know, if they were buried deep down, they were trying to figure out if the dogs could actually psychically find the mines and in the second world war uh, i got hold of a bunch of files which were showing how the british police force was secretly using dowsers to try and find the dead bodies of people who had been killed in um attacks by the nazis you know when the when the germans were flying over and bombing the cities and people were buried under the rubble whether dead or alive that they, the police secretly brought in dowsers to try and find, you know, people buried under the wreckage. So uh, that's one of the things that sort of really kind of, you know, surprised me was the, the sheer extent of a lot of the strange research that uh, government agencies get involved in. I want to know about the dowsers, if they found anything. You want to know about the dowsers, did you say? Yeah, did, did they have any results from the dowsers where they're, where they're like, well, the, the, the dowsers actually did find a bunch of bodies underneath the rubble? Oh, yeah, well, that's one of the interesting things about it is that um, they actually did find bodies, and um, that's, you know, why the, the file is quite an extensive one. Uh, it talks about how a number of police officers, for example, um, actually also had these skills. It wasn't just a case that, uh, you know, the police were looking out for dowsers. When the program was put into place, a couple of officers came forward and said, well, you know, I can douse. 
you know, you don't need to go and find them. And one of them was a PC Terry. That was his last name, Terry. And um, he proved to be extremely good at finding bodies. And um, much of the one particular file that's been declassified talks about um, how the successes he had um, finding these bodies. And um, because of the time frame back then, um, there was a great deal of debate within the file as to whether or not this should be actually done, even if it was successful. And the reason was that, well, if, the, if it got out to the general public and the media, would they think that the police were sort of dabbling in witchcraft, you know, mm. and things like that? That was the, that's the way they looked at it. It was, yes, it was successful, but they were worried about their, how the, how the public would perceive the police, you know, thinking that they were involved in all sorts of occult practices or whatever. <laughs> so, right. uh, you know, it, it tells you as much about, you know, so the prejudices of society in relation to, you know, the unexplained back then versus how today, you know, now and again, the police force, you know, do bring in psychics to try and help, you know, with uh, crime cases when they've sort of given up on every other avenue. And what surprises me about that is just dowsing in general, that they would, like, they'd pick that particular kind of thing that always seems like the biggest kind of hocus-pocus in the first place. <laughs> and, and, and the fact that PC Terry was good at it. Oh, yeah, we'll, we'll send Terry out there. He's a brilliant yeah. dowser. And uh, I, that, I find that remarkable. And, yeah. and the funny thing is, if that's what they declassified, what's the stuff they're keeping? Well, that's right. I mean, that's one of the things we don't know. I mean... You know, for all the really weird and interesting files that have surfaced, you know, we don't know how many remain, you know, behind closed doors. I mean, to give you a few other examples, there's a British government um, crop circle file um, where British pilots um, and American pilots flying over Europe to attack Germany had seen these huge formations on the ground in the fields and um, they thought they were like coded messages left for German pilots. You know, this, it was like, um, you know, a code that would mean like bomb London at midnight approach from the east or something like that. But it turns out that when the uh, certain German pilots have been captured, um, they admitted they'd seen these formations and they thought they were made by the Brits. So, you know, and nobody really knew who made them. So this is like an early crop circle file. Um, wow. And, you know, there are files on uh, witchcraft. Uh, there's like a, a well, well, I wouldn't say well-known, but sort of um, it's in the public domain, a file about how the U.S. military was using sort of um, psychological warfare on the enemy in Vietnam and use and exploiting the, um, the belief systems, the supernatural belief systems of the North Vietnamese. So they would spread stories about some of these monstrous creatures that lived in the jungles of North Vietnam as a means to frighten the North Vietnamese troops. And it actually worked, you know. So um, sometimes, you know, you can... The, the government files talk about genuine unknown phenomena like dowsing or unexplained phenomena but sometimes they would create real life monsters and mysteries as a means to to frighten the enemy but you know there was actually no real monster or creature there but but it, but it actually worked you know the process actually worked of, of frightening the enemy and getting them to leave one specific area so. Well, when you said the witchcraft thing, I thought you were going to have a, a bewitched was a CIA disinformation plot. And I'm like, <laughs> no, I use, 
like, I, I knew I knew there was something spooky about those two different Darrens. <laughs> That's right. Something's not right there. Well, Nick, what I wanted to ask is, you know, I know in my own historical research that, you know, you just get to the point as a researcher, as a paranormal investigator, where, where you think certain things are bunk, you know, like crop circles, for example. And then, you know, you find an old file that, you know, it's before it became popular, before it became such a big thing in the collective consciousness, that they showed up in, in a way that was corroborated by even enemy forces. So, I mean, that's that's crazy when that happens. And that's happened to me, too, where you're like, oh, you know, this is bunk. And then you find an, an article where it's not connected to anything or, you know, some kind of document which really kind of tells you the rest of the story. And then you're like, whoa, I mean, I thought I didn't think there was anything to this. And now I have to reassess. You know, have, have you uh, come to that point uh, in your research sometimes where, where you, you just thought you, you had something sorted and then, you know, a spanner gets thrown into the works because you find, you, find, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, some documentation or articles that make you change your mind? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, certainly the crop circle one is a classic example because, you know, even the term crop circle wasn't created until sort of the late 1980s. Um, and people assumed it was a modern day phenomenon. But reading these files, you know, regardless of whether people think crop circles are a real unexplained phenomenon or they think it's just a bunch of guys running around, you know, stomping the, the corn down in the middle of the night, regardless of what views people have, these files are important because they show it's actually not a new phenomenon. And it also shows that, you know, these things were being seen in the 40s, not just in the UK, but in mainland Europe when the pilots were flying, you know, towards Germany. So, again, you have to sort of re-approach uh, re the phenomenon, you know, really to show that, um, hey, this isn't just a modern-day issue, regardless of what your views are. But I do find that quite often. I mean, sort of going back to the Men in Black cases, um, I mean, for the most part, the Men in Black mystery kicked off in the early 1950s, and there were a few sporadic cases in the late 40s. But over the years, I've got a lot of stories where people had encounters clearly with the men in black, but they went back to sort of like the 1920s, and I've got even got some reports from the 1800s and 1700s that people sent me from old manuscripts written back then, and they're clearly describing pretty much the same as what people are describing today with the men in black. So again, that forces you to sort of reassess when the phenomenon really kicked in, and, you know, were they around before you know, the the UFO issue was around even. So, uh, you know, it sort of pushes the barriers back, but it also makes you realize that we're not seeing the full picture of a lot of these phenomena. You know, they seem to expand in time, but certainly further backwards. And, you know, some of the ideas that this is just hoaxing, you have to then sort of throw that sort of scenario out the window, really. Well, wouldn't that be great to see a steampunk Men in Black? <laughs> well, yeah. that, would, that wouldn't actually surprise me. <laughs> well, you know, what you're saying is is like the holy grail to me. You know, when when you're researching something and you, you find uh, articles from history that everybody has forgotten about, and mm -hmm. it's it's talking about something that is still present today. I mean that that's a kind of proof to me um, that there's something authentic to the the phenomena. If you know it's going on today, 
And it was going on before in much the same way. And you know that as, a, you know, Western culture at least, uh, well, I know American culture for sure, you know, as we touched on earlier, does not have a very long memory for history. So and if you can find stuff back in the historical record that supports, uh, you know, that a phenomenon yeah. was going on just as the way it is now. I mean, really, to me, that, that's a, something that, that can make you believe. <laughs> Yeah, and I think, you know, that that's an important issue and it also, you know, impacts on on our you know, our beliefs, our prejudices, our ideas and thoughts and um but you know, I do find it interesting when people say, Oh well there's no such thing as the paranormal but you can find in two very different countries, you know, the UK and the US, you can find a lot of the same phenomena. So in other words, if this was just down to, you know, legend and mythology and, you know, campfire tales, I think we would see a huge difference between the phenomena reported here and the reported in the UK because the cultures are so different. But we actually see near identical things. So in other words, I think that's a good point to the you know, we're dealing with real phenomena, whether it's the men in black or it's, you know, strange creatures like lake monsters and um, ghostly phenomena. When you see this all around the world, I think that's sort of a pointer in the direction that whatever these things are, you know, they are valid and real. And we've had a lot of shows on that uh, recently on cross-cultural aspects. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that as as a form of possibly some proof as well. Yeah, just just the last few shows that we've had, uh, we've been talking a lot about like the little people, for example, and uh, you know, going into one of your most recent books, uh, three hundred and sixty-five days of UFOs. I was looking for local connections in there, and you had one from December twenty-fourth, nineteen seventy-one. Hey, Mike, it was in Trumpelo, so it's Trumpelo Mountain, Wisconsin, which is I I don't think it's official. It's not officially a mountain. It's only four hundred twenty-five feet tall, but it's a mountain to us. Um, so anyway, uh, up in that, that nature area, a man named Frank Banner was walking mm-hmm. his dog, and he ran across 15 little people dressed in what he described as primitive clothing. And, and he took them to be aliens. But I, I wanted to hear, you know, if you recall anything from that, um, that seems to be have ties uh, cross-culturally. Yeah, well, you know, these sort of stories, I've actually got a lot of accounts of people seeing like little humanoid creatures in the woods and so on. And although in some cases, you know, people do perceive these as aliens, I mean, there is this intriguing theory that, you know, could there be sort of hidden offshoots of the human race, you know, that... um, you know, we're, we're Homo sapien, and, you know, before us, it was like Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal. And so the theory is, could there be other types of primitive human that perhaps coexist with us in a very stealthy way and to the point where we don't know about them and just they're occasionally seen? I mean, for example, you might remember, like, about 10 years, years or so ago, the story surfaced... Um, out of, like, for example, Sumatra, stories of the, the so-called Hobbit. You know, there's right. like this very primitive small humanoid about three feet tall, which was far more human-like than ape-like. And um, people still see strange creatures around that area today. Today it's called the Orang Pendek, and it's described as like a small humanoid ape-like animal that walks upright. And some people think it is far more human than ape-like period. So, you know, I sometimes wonder with some of these cases coming out of like Trempolo Mountain and so on, 
that are we actually dealing, you know, with an indigenous race that has hidden from us and stayed away from us for as long as it's been around, you know, and occasionally gets seen. Well, I used to live in that area of the state, and I'd say it's probably inbreds. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Mike. It's the hills have eyes up in Trempolo Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually been to Trempolo Mountain. I did um, an episode of Monster Quest there about... uh, seven or eight years ago and uh, I think you can probably find it on YouTube but uh, we went out there because there have been reports of like giant birds and things like that out there and um, I remember it was like boiling hot and uh, we had to climb the mountain <laughs> I thought I was going to die by the time I got to the top because <laughs> we were carrying backpacks and all sorts <laughs> but, uh, but no it was a cool sort of fun uh, expedition but uh, a friend of mine uh, unfortunately passed away a few years ago Mac Tonis he wrote a book called The Crypto Terrestrials and um, it's only a small book because he, he, he died before he was able to finish it all but the editor was able to put together you know the a good manuscript and basically his book the crypto terrestrials deals with this idea of like secret or hidden indigenous races that that are related to the human race coexisting with us and he talks about people uh, who he spoke to who'd seen sort of these little primitive humanoid entities in the woods you know in some of the some of the massive woods and forests you know where hardly anybody ever goes and uh, I guess the closest analogy I can think of in the world of fiction I don't know if you've ever seen um, the movie The Darkness about the, a bunch of uh, girls they're uh, cavers you know they enter this cave system in this um, you know forested part of the US and they get attacked by these small humanoids that live deep underground and you know they're responsible for you know, a lot of the people who go missing every year. So, you know, oh, that's, it's basically that's a, dinner, you know. <laughs> the Neil Marshall movie, right? That's um Yeah, that's the one, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, that's a that's a fantastic film. We'll put a yeah, link that to is. that in the show notes because it's uh that's a, a a good one that it it doesn't even feel like a horror movie until you get to the middle of it and then all of a sudden oh, no. the the pants wedding begins all at once. <laughs> that <Right>? sounds like <laughs> something to look up on Netflix tonight. Yeah, it, well, it's actually a follow-on which really isn't good at all, which often happens, you know, with a sequel, it's not mm-hmm. as good. But but if you get to see the uh, the first one, if you haven't seen, that's it, a it's a really good. Uh, movie it's quite thought-provoking you know in the sense that you can find all around the world stories of little people that coexist with it, with us and you know they can be friendly or dangerous or helpful or violent and i mean you know people think of fairies you know they think of like tinkerbell and little figures flitting around the christmas tree or whatever you know but if you go back and look at the original stories of of uh, fairies in the UK say 5 or 600 years ago they were quite sort of ominous creatures they were described as like 3 to 4 feet tall or 2 feet tall they would typically come out at night and they would live in the underground areas in these mounds and tunnels and they would steal babies and all sorts of weird stuff like this and you know when you when you look at that and then you've got things like um goblins and you know i think although we look at these phenomena today more from a perspective of either very skeptical or it's just a bit of fun you know for the kids that kind of thing but i often think that where where you have legends very often they're based on a reality even if it's a distorted reality so you know i think 
the the fairy the original fairies today have been mutated like i said into tinkerbell type characters but back then you know they were as sort of feared as much as they were respected you know and they they were like little sort of ugly looking wizened creepy little humanoids that would come out the ground so you know you have to wonder if there is a reality to it that something semi-human does coexist with us you know well, uh, fairies seem to be coming up all the time lately in our conversations, which is funny. <laughs> it, it, it is like, well, you know about the fairies. It's like, yep. Uh, but it's I think that like might be Gr- my fault. <laughs> but you know what's funny? Grimm's fairy tales, though. I mean, the same kind of thing. You think of Grimm's fairy tales started out as much darker stories and then evolved to be, you know, Beauty and the Beast, like this, you know, or Cinderella yeah. or these wonderful, or Snow White. Like Snow White doesn't get put to death at the end of the Disney version. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, a good another good example would be if you look at things like sea serpents. Now, you know, probably the most famous sea monster would be something like the Kraken, you know. But that was like, allegedly, like this gigantic thing, you know, sort of, Ten times the size of Godzilla or whatever. Um, but, and so I don't think the Kraken really was a, a genuine animal. But what I do think is that people may well have seen uh, things like sea serpents, which I think, you know, are a reality. And over time, it became distorted into where, you know, a 30 or 40 foot long sea serpent type creature was seen. And then over time, the legend grows and grows to where the point where it was like a fire-breathing creature of 300 feet long or whatever, you know. So I think, again, it's important not to dismiss folk tales and mythology because very often they do have a reality at the as the, their basis or at the core of it, but it's just been changed over time. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like human nature. It's like the guy who, you know, is out fishing and bags a two-foot salmon he swears it's three foot long you know what i mean that kind of thing (laughs) well i was wondering nick you know we should talk about your new books really quick but before we get to that in your you know as long as we're talking about the wide ranging breadth of your research what do you think is the biggest surprise that you is you came into something thinking okay i'm just looking over this as an obligation i think it's completely way out there and i don't believe it at all and then you came away thinking there's something to this that i wasn't quite you know that now i am interested in it okay well yeah i can tell you what that definitely is that would be the the puerto rican chupacabra uh, I wrote a book um, a couple, two years ago called Chupacabra Road Trip, which is all about my expeditions to Puerto Rico and road trips to Puerto Rico and around the U.S. looking for the Chupacabra. Now, when the, the mystery first uh, surfaced out of Puerto Rico in the mid-90s, you know, there were a lot of stories and friend-of-a-friend accounts and a lot of sort of hysteria and, you know, over-the-top excitement about this. And although I was fascinated by it, you know, I was follow the stories it was still one of these things where well you know it's a long way away i'm not able to get there and um some of the stories were friend of a friend cases but over the course of the last um well the first time i went to puerto rico was 2004 and the most recent time was 2014 and i've been there many times now and collectively for probably several months altogether and what sort of really surprised me was the sheer 
highly credible body of reports and, you know, how the story or the phenomenon is taken extremely seriously. I spoke to like, veterinarians, police officers, uh, ranchers, members of the public, um, all of whom had their own experiences and, you know, described this creature as very similar, like a, a humanoid-type creature about the size of a chimpanzee but completely hairless and with these glowing red eyes and with like a, a row of spikes down its head and neck like a kind of like a punk rock mohawk but made of spikes um, and some a lot of people reported having the creatures having these bat-like wings um, and describing a very ominous looking creature but the people relating the accounts were highly credible and you know when you sort of spend time with the people and getting to know them and gaining their trust uh, or excuse me that they gain your trust you know um, and they realize you're not going to poke fun and you've been respectful then they open up and um, and I've got you know a bunch of really good highly credible cases from Puerto Rico of whatever this thing is I mean it kind of sounds like the closest thing you could imagine to a cross between like the Mothman and a, and a gargoyle. You know, that's probably mm. the best way I can describe how they look. Um, so going to Puerto Rico, you know, in person, spending a lot of time there, um, you know, really did open my eyes to the, the not just the reality of the phenomenon, but the seriousness of it, seriousness of it and also the widespread... Um, nature of it all across the island of Puerto Rico. And of course, uh, you know, they make good margaritas there as well. So. Well, the, the, El Chup- <laughs> the thing about the Chupacabra, I always, I always think it, it's, a, it's a funny idea because they had all of those, uh, the bombing ranges and the, exper- mm. you know, so they have all of that strange ammunition. And like on Vieques, there's still lots of unexploded ammunition and bombs and stuff. And there's parts of the island you can't go to. And you're just thinking... Did that, you know, did all of all of those things and depleted uranium and everything, you know, uh, get into the water and create some kind of mutant uh, punk rock creature? Yeah, well, that that is one of the theories that's been put forward. The idea that you know the it could be like a mutant type creature. Uh, a lot of people don't realise, you know, given the fact that it's like a huge jungle type environment, there actually aren't any uh, large indigenous animals on Puerto Rico. Anything of any size is, has been imported, and we're just talking about like pigs, cows, uh, goats, that kind of horses, that kind of thing. The, other than that, there's just you know um, just very small animals, rats, rodents, things like that, and, and obviously a lot of um, lizards and reptiles, those kinds of things. Um, so whatever these creatures are. In some fashion, either they were mutated on the island or somehow they were brought here, but they you know, obviously don't seem to be an indigenous because people weren't reporting them hundreds of years ago. Um, but, you know, there has been some weird stuff going on on the island. I mean, for example, there's a small island just off the coast of the main island of Puerto Rico where for years they've done research into primates, into uh, apes and also into monkeys. And... Um, it's like an experimental lab area where they've done research into what's called SIV, which is the um, the, the simian version of HIV in people. And the research has been done to try and, you know, figure out ways to cure, completely cure 
AIDS. And um, but yeah, there's been like a lot of military um, programs on Puerto Rico as well, and um, and also stories of uh, contaminants getting into the water supply. That's actually something I talk about in the book as well as to how that might have some sort of role in it. Now. One of the reasons why I think that could be the case is that, you know, about, about a decade or so or thereabouts ago, we had the stories of the so-called uh, chupacabra coming to the United States and specifically here in the U.S. Now, if you look up Texas chupacabra, you'll see a creature that looks nothing like the Puerto Rican one, which is, like right. I said, like a bipedal winged animal. The yeah, I'm sure you've seen these pictures, these sort of hairless dog-like animals. that it's a um, mangy mutt. Yeah. Now, although the skeptics say, well, they're just coyotes with mange, they're actually not. There is more to it than that. Now, they're not an unknown species because we actually have the bodies of a number of them which have been autopsied, and they clearly are coyote DNA, sometimes mixed with wild wolves, sometimes mixed with dogs. But for the most part, the overriding DNA is coyote. But most of these animals that have been photographed and killed it is, they're just, they're completely hairless. Now, mange is a condition caused by a mite, which um, typically has the animals, you know, just scratching themselves and biting themselves because they're just crazy, you know, because they're itching so much. And the, the scratching causes infections and they very often die. And the, oh, and that the, makes me feel bad. The, the, yeah, it is a bad, yeah, if well, you look <laughs> into it, it's not happy. It's a, it's oh, fatal. No, it's not. It's not a nice condition. And, um, and But the hair is quite patchy. But mm-hmm. with these animals, they're like 100% hairless. There's no evidence of the scratching and the itching. It's like they're developing in a hairless way. Now, on You'd top think of that'd that, be a Brazilian phenomenon. Oh, Mike. <laughs> yeah, yeah, good one. <laughs> and, um, Just ignore him. Also, uh, yeah, no, I got it. I got it. That was a good one, actually. <laughs> but um, there are other um, issues as well. Like, for example, they have this overextended overbite. You know, their jaws should be uniform, but they're not. Um, and also they have this sort of weird hopping movement. Their front limbs are sort of growing at a, at a shorter level. So they kind of have this hopping movement like a kangaroo. And there's like a psychological aspect as well, is that most coyotes, you know, if they're around people, though they see people, they run away. And they typically come out and hunt at night. Um, these creatures, one of the reasons why we, why, why ranchers have been able to um, kill them or shoot them, and, you know, and, or why they've been hit by vehicles, is because they very often are seen hunting in the day and they're not frightened of people. For example, I've got one really sort of creepy case where a rancher's um, farm animals were being attacked and he went out in his truck. This was a, a Texas case and he was, you know, like a big sort of burly macho Texas ranch, you know, with his truck and his guns and everything else. And he went out and saw one of these animals, got out his truck, was about to shoot it. And he kind of had that feeling that we all have from time to time that you're being watched. And he looked over his right shoulder and there was another one about about 150 feet away, 100 feet away. And then to the left of him, there was another. And he felt with hindsight, the three of them were like triangulating him and they were slowly getting closer and for all of his you know his guns and everything else he jumped back in that truck and and headed straight back to his ranch and 
close the door. But they, but he, he felt that, you know, they were sort of targeting him and, you know, closing in, which is unheard of. You know, coyotes just don't do that with people. It's like the raptors in Jurassic Park. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Now, what's interesting is a good friend of mine, Ken Gerhard. Uh, Ken lives down in San Antonio. And Ken has done a lot of research um, in the in the area. And one of the things that he's found is that where we have clusters of these strange coyotes is um, is an area where or areas where you have coal burning plants. Now, one of the um, offshoots of burning of coal burning plants is that they provoke into the atmosphere what's called sulfur dioxide. Now, sulfur dioxide is what's known as a mutagen. Now, a mutagen is something that can affect an animal at a DNA level. You know, it's the, the, probably the worst mutagen of all is mercury. If like a pregnant woman gets not that it would hardly ever happen, but if you, a pregnant woman got mu, uh, mercury inside her body, it can cause massive uh, deformities, uh, deformities to the growing uh, fetus. And so, in other words, any kind of mutagen can have an effect on the human body and on, on animals as well. Now, of course, most people don't go around drinking mercury, um, and I wouldn't recommend it. But with sulfur dioxide, that gets into the air, so you're breathing it in. You, you, you know, it's like with an atomic bomb with radiation. You know, you have no way to avoid it because it's not a physical thing. It's just something you're breathing in. And that's the same with sulfur dioxide. And Ken has concluded that what's happening is that the reason why we get so many of these so-called Texas chupacabras around these plants is because they're being affected by sulfur dioxide and the mutagen aspect is now creating almost like a new breed of coyote. And in other words, it's our contamination is actually changing the species. That's absolutely fascinating. Like the, uh, number one, I didn't know we were going to talk about the chupacabra for ten minutes. So the fact that the, <laughs> the, the, the fact that that's your big surprise uh, is a huge surprise to me. So that was really exciting. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> and so you just have a couple of new books out, and mm. it's hard to keep is, track of all of them. But <laughs> I was going to say we managed. I mean, <laughs> it used to be actually as well. So. <laughs> <laughs> so your latest book is is that the UFO one or is that the one on secret societies? Well, they'd pretty much come out at the same time. And it wasn't the case that, um, you know, I'd sort of feverishly been burning the candle at both ends, you know, for uh, for weeks or months at a time. What often happens is that because I'm with four or five different publishers, one book might be, you know, the writing might be finished a year ago. and But the way the public, one publisher might work is that they only put out one book from me for a per year. Another one might put one out every six months. So occasionally I'll have two out at the same time where it looks like I've been writing them at the same time, but I actually haven't. It's just the publisher's uh, schedule. So, so they're both brand new books, but the Secret Societies one was actually finished long before the 365 days of UFOs, but they're both out together. And um, the Secret Societies one is like a, a 200 entries, 400 page long study of secret societies throughout history. Now, of course, I've included the, the well-known ones like the, the Masons and the Illuminati and things like that. Um, but what I wanted to do was, you know, demonstrate to people there's a lot of really fascinating cults and secret societies that most people probably have never heard of. I mean, a good example and a very weird example is um, 
one of the entries in the book, which is called the Loch Ness Dragon Cult. Now, back in the 19, late 1960s, um, a number of American tourists, three American tourists, uh, paid a visit to Loch Ness, and they weren't really that interested in the Loch Ness Monster. They were there to see a place called Beleskin House, which... Um, burned down two years ago. But Bleskin House in the early part of the 20th century was owned by Alistair Crowley, the famous yeah. occultist. <laughs> and they wanted to see his house. Now, it turns out while they were there, they had a walk around, there's a, a, an old cemetery next to the house. And um, they found this strange, um, it was like a, like a patchwork um, almost like a sheet, but it was actually had all these designs of serpents on there and strange writing all written in what turned out to be Turkish. And this uh, particular um, sort of parchment, if you like, was shown to a uh, Loch Ness uh, monster researcher who was in the air at the time named Ted Holliday. And Ted Holliday dug into this further and found that this um, parchment was actually talking about how um, it was essentially like uh, instructions for rites and rituals to try and uh, conjure up a Babylonian sea goddess, uh, a snake serpent named Tiamat, uh, that you know was like a, a thousands, multi-thousand years old ancient Babylonian um, deity, if you like, but a highly dangerous one. This sort of um, like a cross between a, a woman and this serpent-like creature. And the more I think I dated her. In- <laughs> <laughs> We've all dated girls like that occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, what happened was that Ted Holliday found that um, the more he dug into it, that, that this um, snake serpent um, cult, worshipping cult, was still active in and around the Loch Ness area. And he heard, he uncovered a number of uh, disturbing stories about human sacrifice in the area. Now, I should stress, these stories weren't confirmed, but he came to believe, that, again, like with the stories of the, the little people we talked about earlier, he came to believe that, you know, some of the people who'd vanished in and around Scotland may have sort of fallen victim to this um, Babylonian snake goddess cult that existed somewhere in and around Loch Ness. So in other words, with the book, I've tried to go with sort of really interesting and intriguing stories relating to cults and secret societies that most people have probably never heard of, but which are in many respects far more interesting than just, you know, talking about the Illuminati over and over again, you know. Wow, that that was a good one. Yeah, I, I didn't didn't think uh, Tiamat was going to come up. <laughs> yeah, Tiamat always comes up. <laughs> yeah, when you're least expecting her. But oh, Alistair Crowley, the Alistair uh, uh, Crowley connection is is great. Holy moly, it's Alistair him, Crowley, Uncle Al. We call him Uncle Al on the <laughs> show. Our good old Uncle Al. <laughs> but you know, but there's a lot of weird cults out there you know most of them you know the whole inspiration is sort of power money influence sex you know it, it's like those four are the, the four main areas that you know people sort of gravitate towards secret societies and um and you can find them all around all around the world you know and um and it's, when you start looking into these things it's like a you know a fascinating secret world that most people never find out about and, you know, don't even know about. And, um, and and the more you look into it, the more you, you see that 
the world around us isn't necessarily what it appears to be. I mean, another good example, one from the US, um, there's an entry in the book called The Sons of Satan. Um, now, The Sons of Satan was a group that actually surfaced in the 1970s, and they claimed that they were behind um, at least some of the cattle mutilations that were occurring in the Southwest on a large scale back in the early to mid-70s when the subject was at its height. Now, whether or not this was true, there is some evidence that it was true, but they clearly weren't responsible for the entirety of the cattle mutilation phenomenon. So this is where it gets a little bit confusing that, you know, there appears to be some sort of definitively unknown uh, aspect to the phenomenon, you know, and, and whatever's causing this but it seems like the sons of satan sort of jumped on the bandwagon or may actually even have sort of used the real cattle mutilation phenomenon as a camouflage to allow them to perform their sort of ritualistic rites and so on on cattle and and use the cattle mutilation as i said as a, as a cover story um but they're a very mysterious group that vanished as as quickly as they first surfaced or were first were first exposed i should say um but again it demonstrates you know some of these weird disturbing satanic groups you know sort of traveling around the united states and um you know performing all sorts of weird rituals and so on well piggybacking on cattle mutilation like that that's that's a, that's a couple of words that you don't think uh would come together it's like oh yeah well they're gonna be they're gonna be slaughtering and like taking the innards out of some cattle tonight guys we can totally grab this blood for our satanic ritual <laughs> hell yeah um <clears throat> I think you know, in a, in a, in, a, in a strange way, that was part of it. You know, it was a case of they knew that this, the sons of Satan knew that if they sort of just started large-scale killing on cattle, they might get tracked down. But what worked so well for them was that there was a real cattle mutilation phenomenon, and so they could, you know, do what they were doing and. They knew that people would think, oh, it's some more of these cattle mutilations. So, in other words, their activities would remain hidden in a very sort of strange way, really. Well, you know, Allison came up with this question. I'm looking through the outline right now, and I think this is a good one because for years, it's like the secret society of skull and bones. You got George Bush and John Kerry, both skull and bones, Obama, Harvard Law School, and all of these, the American aristocracy of the people that have been presidents have all been Masons, secret society mm. members for, for, for centuries now. Now, mm. the people that usually investigate this are guys like Alex Jones and Infowars. But since Alex Jones and Infowars are all in on Donald Trump, has there been any kind of, I mean, is he part of a secret society that we don't know about? Or has any secret societies seem to, um, Ed Wharton or something like that, where he went to school in, in your research? I've, I've got to be honest, I haven't personally come across anything, no. But, I mean, th there's no doubt, though, that, you know, when you talk about things like, um, you know, skull and bones, there's no doubt that, you know, some of the most powerful figures in the United States government and history, you know, have been allied to Skull and Bones. I mean, it dates back to the, the 1830s. And, um, you know, from there, it, it sort of grew. And, you know, powerful figures were recruited into, the, into this particular body and to the point where it became, you know, basically became like an order, you know, to where you did have, like, for example, presidents, um, 
powerful and influential people in the banking industries and and, and also like think tank type groups, you know, that sort of help uh, develop, um, you know, the economy and things like that. So in other words, Skull and Bones has has been, you know, like a major organization when it comes to sort of molding and, um, you know, like, not so much creative, but more molding the United States, you know, and its history and um, and and its goals and things like, and its interests, you know. In your research on the secret societies, have you found any of the, well, something more recent? Like when we think about secret societies, we think about ancient, we think of cults. You know, we're talking about resurrecting a Babylonian goddess from millennia ago. Yeah. What have you found in maybe more recent secret societies mm. that have kind of sprung up, especially in the age of the internet? Well, actually, there's a, a perfect one I can think of that actually does relate to the internet. And um, I've got a number of really weird and, and also disturbing stories coming from various parts of the U.S. of like an like an underground cult uh, de- uh, devoted to the Slenderman phenomenon. Now. You know that the Slender Man was. There's no doubt was you know an internet creation. You know you can look it up and, and find the origins of it. But there is this theory which relates to what are known as tulpas or thought forms that when enough people believe in something it, in a strange way it can give give life to like a like a supernatural real life equivalent of the of something that existed just in fiction. So in other words, you know that the Slender Man has has become a phenomenon of sort of on a massive scale, you know, and to the point where there was a, you know, a very sort of macabre story from a couple of years ago where a couple of girls, you know, actually tried to murder their school friend in the name of, of the Slender Man. Um, and, you know, you can find made-up stories on the internet, and you can also find real stories of people who swore they saw the Slender Man. And as I said, it relates to this issue of when the human mind, collectively, on a massive scale, people start to believe in something, we can, we can externalize it and actually create the phenomenon. And it has some sort of, you know, its own quasi-existence. And I've heard of a number of people who have supposedly, in some kind of like an underground cult, when I say underground, I don't mean literally, I mean, you know, clandestine cult, that is trying to give more and more strength to this sort of mind-created slender man, and they sort of, you know, uh, have their rituals and rites to try and give it more power and substance to where maybe there could be multiple slender men, you know, creating these things um, all across the planet, you know, which would be kind of very bizarre but um everything is bizarre about a lot of these cults even just the rituals of some of the more down-to-earth ones you know there's there's rarely a cult has existed that isn't a little bit strange in some way so well i mean just the fact that like who would try to create you, you think about the different things that you could use with your brain like why don't we try to create indiana jones like why are we trying to create the slender man like right. <laughs> That seems a little on the negative side. <laughs> well, yeah. and, and that attempted murder that happened in uh, Allison in my backyard. Yeah, not, really not, not backyard. too far away. <laughs> but, like about 20, um, 30 minutes away from me. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and about 10 minutes from where we grew up. And, wow. And so that particular, like there are people in our Facebook 
who we know who are like affected by that. And you're just thinking, yeah. you know, girls doing not just girls, but people in general, adolescents do crazy things. But that particular thing and the idea that you, you could think that these these fictional creatures are you know, could be brought into reality. And I well, remember your talk about thought forms was something that influenced me a lot um, when I read your Three Men Seeking Monsters book. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. A drunken trip all around the UK, I mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I, I took that book with me. So, Allison, you get it with me for Christmas, I think, one year. I know. I'm the best sister ever. You are the best sister ever. And then I took that book with me on a trip around the UK. And oh, so cool. we went to some of those similar locations and oh, uh, nice. probably didn't get as drunk, but we tried. <laughs> you set the bar high, Nick. Yeah, I know. Well, you, when you grow up in England, you know, that's, that's what happens. <laughs> but that, that idea of the thought form is the first place. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the whole concept of thought forms is intriguing. It's, it's basically, you know, if you put a, a meme or an idea out there and people become fascinated by it and they think about it, and it's on their mind, and it's not just one person or 20 or 100, it's thousands, then the, thought, the theory is that the human mind, the imagination, if you like, can create things that we can essentially externalize them. You know, they can sort of stride out of our minds and have their own strange form of independent life. And they're not necessarily, they're obviously not physical creatures in the sense that we understand it. You know, it's not like we're giving birth to them, but it's like we're projecting the imagery outwards. And the more that people believe in them, so the theory goes, is that they take on more and more of an independent existence and an intelligence and and also like a sense of cunning and quite manipulative and to where that they often turn on their creators. You know, it's like a like a real-life equivalent of Dr. Frankenstein and the monster, you know. He unleashes this monster, which uh, proves to be his downfall. And that's kind of the same thing, is that the, the so-called tulpas, or thought forms, as they're known, um, they turn on their creators inevitably. That's pretty much always the result that happens. And um, so, you know, when, when you look at these cases and you find, you know, the Slender Man, which has a, does have a... I don't mean everybody who follows the Slender Man is in, is in league with this cult. That's obviously not the case. But there are people who are big fans of the Slender Man phenomenon, you know, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, some of them sort of little paintings on the walls of, you know, framed pictures of the Slender Man, and they read books about it. And when you've got thousands of people doing that, then you can understand how this thought form phenomenon could come into being and then then you have some people who you know according to these rumors flying around now that there have been in various parts of the u.s particularly cults created in the name of the slender man and you know they're trying to perform rituals to to bring him further and further into our world you know and to essentially do do its bidding you know they want to be the slender man's minions or whatever well, um, you know what I think is interesting there is the correlation between that and the new Nightmare movie that Wes Craven did in the 90s. Oh, yeah. He, uh-huh. And that was the whole idea that because Freddy Krueger existed in the imaginations of people, that mm-hmm. he started to bleed through into real life, into the creators of the, of, of the fiction. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, that whole uh, idea that and Freddy Krueger's a character, too. Like, you create this character that appears in people's nightmares, and then you watch the movie, and then you start having nightmares. Mm-hmm. That's also one of the theories that's been put through for the men in black. That, you know, the, the idea that everybody, in so, to some degree, kind of fears authority figures in, like, black suits and black fedoras and sunglasses knocking on your door and intimidating you and then you know the it's got the image of them you know is kind of it's like unforgettable you know they kind of they're not like the movie versions you know the real ones are sort of pale and skinny and look um like cadavers you know dressed in black suits and it's just that image that gets in people's minds and imagination to where i think that at least some Men in Black reports might be tulpas, you know, the, the way the phenomenon's developed and been embraced by ufology to the point where maybe the Men in Black are, you know, because they act in such strange ways, it's almost like they're not fully self-aware of what they are. And, you know, that might be explainable if they are sort of, ironically, our own creations. And now it's like we can't put it, we can't put it back in the bottle, you know, it's now out and loose in society. Well, and what is really uh, strange about that for me, the the whole Slenderman case is, um, so I'm an avid listener to Coast to Coast, um, as many of us are, and the night before uh, the Slenderman stabbing on Friday, May 30th, 2014, Dave Schrader uh, had a guest on, Bill uh, Murphy from uh, Sci-Fi's Fact or Faked, and they talked about such things. They talked about tulpas just like we are now and they particularly talked about the slender man and you know how he might be actually coming into uh, existence Mm -hmm. because of people's beliefs and you know people's uh intentions uh to bring him forth or to focus on him and then i just thought the the very next day i I thought that was really strange that um the very next day on the 31st is when the stabbing happened now maybe the uh people who who perpetrated the act maybe those girls were listening or maybe it's something else but the the coincidence there was was just really startling to me now that is i mean another classic example for the modern era as well would be the relatively recent surfacing of the so-called shadow people as well. You know, which in some respects, they're not unlike the men in black because there's like one subcategory of the shadow people known as the hat man, which is like a shadowy silhouetted form, but wearing like a black suit and like a black fedora. So, you know, there's there's no doubt with this, with the shadow people, that has kind of not as big a following as the... Um, Slenderman, but certainly the shadow people is an area that a lot of people focus on and follow. And, you know, people wake up in the middle of the night and see this shadowy, one-dimensional, shadowy humanoid just looming over the bed or whatever. And that's, although you can find, you know, stories like sleep paralysis and things like that going back thousands of years, the silhouetted shadow person is a relatively new uh, sort of aspect to it. So that, you know, there could be a tie in there as well. Well, you know, it's funny about, uh, well, about 20 years ago now, before the whole shadow person phenomenon happened, I was, I, I was walking with, with some friends in a, uh, like a city, or not a, really a city park, but more like a county out in the middle of nowhere kind of place park, about, I'd say 10 miles from where that Slender Man stabbing occurred, actually. And we were walking down the path, and against a sign, it was a full moon that night, very bright, and against the sign we saw the shadow of a person. Mm. And it was me and, and two other girls who saw it. 
and everybody saw it at the same time. It didn't reflect any light, or I mean, you could read the sign except for the shadow of the person against the sign. Oh, wow. And it had this feeling, of, like, and that may have just been the fear talking, but everybody had a feeling of dread. The girls saw it, I saw it, they freaked out and ran away. I saw it again for a second, I looked back, and then when I looked, it was there was nobody there. And we would if it was a person, you would have seen the features. You know, you would have seen like a nose or, or some kind. It would have re- reflected light, just like being under a lamp. And so when I started seeing on the internet a few years later, the fact that other people were seeing shadow figures and and not related to a ghost and and I don't see I don't see things very normal like I I've been on a million ghost tours I've run a million ghost tours and I see I I never see anything let's just say like sometimes I get like I'll feel like a weird grab on my arm and I'm like that's just my imagination but to have an actual visual thing shared with a couple other people and then to have other people in the world four or five years later to start talking about this and to pick up on coast to coast yeah. and you're like Holy crap! Like yeah. that, I might not be. I might not be crazy. That that was really compelling to me too, because you know, like we were talking about before, Nick. You know, when you have some knowledge of something before it becomes popular, or when you have some knowledge of something way back in history, you know, before it was known to the modern era, there's something there. When you know, when he was telling me the story, and then later on it became so popular, I'm like, hey, there could be something real there. My brother wasn't just tripping acid in the forest. (laughs) Not that time. (laughs) Well, and to move on from that, I think that you caused my wife and I to see a tulpa in the forest at the Blarney Castle in Ireland. Because we we were reading your book, and we just got to the point, I was telling my wife, and she's not into any of this stuff. Like, she thinks it's fun, and she'll put up with me. But um, (laughs) we were, you know, when we were traveling through the UK, and I was reading your book, and then we dipped off to Ireland for a few days. And then we're in the, the forest, the park at the Blarney Castle. And we both saw a, like a dark creature. I saw a dog. She saw a cat. And, when, and then I, you know, I took a picture. And, it, and you just see a, like a black shape of a cat, featureless, in the, in the distance. But she was considering leaving her career and going into veterinary. And she was offered a job at this cat care clinic. Mm-hmm. And so she was looking for a sign of oh, what she I should see. do with her life. And oh, wow. we both saw something. And this is another thing where it's like, okay, we were together. We saw something. And I'm like, well, it's probably just a dog. And she's like, I, I saw a cat. And I'm like, what do you mean? I'm like, it's totally not a cat. And then I took a look at the picture and it's a, there's a just black shape of a cat, you know, a hundred yards away or whatever. And I'm like, oh my God, did we, <laughs> did I read this book, tell you about it? And then we go have a tulpa experience, you know, two days later. Wow. That's interesting. I mean, maybe that's exactly what happened. So, yeah. So, Nick, one last question for you, I think. And I could, like, the way you tell stories, we could probably just say, like, um, press a button and go, go, and just listen to your stuff all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I'd, I'd just stay here all day if I could. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I want to I save some more, especially because you have such a prolific printing schedule. We always know that it's like, let's bring Nick on to talk about his new book. That's um, right. <laughs> just I'm let a couple in- months go by and he'll be back on again. Because you have one coming out on shape-shifting soon, don't you? Yeah, that comes out in September, but typically with the publishing industry, it might actually start to appear in the, in the shops in August. But uh, it's, you know, I mean, obviously the most famous shape-shifter of all is like the werewolf. 
and there's, there's, there are like three or four chapters on werewolves in the book. But what I've done also is to show people that, you know, contrary to popular opinion or popular belief, um, there are multiple different times of uh, types of um, shapeshifters. Like they've got a chapter in there on where cats, where people have seen, like people turn into almost like a something that's half cat, you know, like a bipedal cat-like animal. Um, a real cat. And also lady. how. Yeah, like a lot of ancient, like Babylonian uh, supernatural entities could take on different forms as well. And I also talk about like clinical lycanthropy, you know, where people in their mind believe they're changing into different animals. Um, so it covers, and also things like um, witches, familiars, you know, in the Middle Ages in the UK, where witches would have these familiars, as they were called, these demonic creatures that could turn into, like, bats or cats, and so... Or, or so that cute little vinegar Tom that I want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Google. He's so cute. That's why he's irresistible. <laughs> so, you know, you this shapeshifters, you know, actually goes far beyond just, you know, the Hollywood image of somebody bursting out of their clothes, you know, at the full moon or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, we can't wait to have you back on and and talk about that uh and you know there's just so many other topics that, that i think would be really incredible to talk to you about oh the one last thing i wanted to get from you nick was in your 365 days of ufos in the full year of ufos you had to pick a story on your birthday and you know that when it's it's going to be your birthday it's probably <laughs> going to you're going to probably have several different stories you know what I mean? And you'll be like, this is the best one, and i got to make it good because it's my birthday. So I was wondering what was the UFO story associated with your birthday, because I thought that would probably be the best one. Okay, well, my birthday is uh, November 24, and um, ironically, it's actually not that uh, impressive, really. <laughs> it's a study of uh, an Air Force um, documentation uh, that talks about how the military, well, it, I guess it is interesting, you know, how the military um, was dealing with the media on the UFO subject and, you know, sort of the the Air Force's concerns that they were going to be, you know, treated fairly um, and not be sort of accused of covering things up. So, you know, it's sort of an interesting, it wasn't so much a UFO case, but it's interesting in terms of how, the, the military had concerns that, you know, well, what's the media going to say to us and how, do, how should we deal with the media when, if they ask us questions about UFOs, with it being sort of like a controversial area. So, you know, that particularly sort of demonstrates how, you know, the government perceives the media and probably ufology as well in terms of what they should say or not say and, and concerns about, you know, being misquoted or you know, people getting a distorted view if it's a sensational story. So, you know, it does give like some intriguing insight into what goes on behind the scenes. Awesome. Well, Nick, uh, where can people find you? Do you have a website or anything in particular if people are looking to get more information on Nick Redfern and his prolific paranormal authorship? Yeah, sure. Well, I have a blog, which I update, update most days, and um, it's called World of Whatever, and the address is Nick Redfern 14, F-O-R-T-E-A-N, nickredfern14.blogspot.com. 
Um, people can reach me at Twitter, Nick Redfern UFO, or you can also find me uh, on Facebook as well. There's, there are actually a few Nick Redferns on Facebook, but scroll down and see the guy in the uh, black leather jacket, the bandana, uh, standing, standing in front of an old black car, and that's me. Um, and people can get the books. Uh, all my books are available on Amazon, and about 60% of them you can buy off the shelves in Barnes & Noble as well. So. And we're going to have links to all of that stuff in the show notes. That's othersidepodcast.com slash 137. And that's where you'll be able to find links to anything by Nick Redfern. And you're going to be able to learn more, pick up the books, because you're going to want to read them. Alice and I have read a bunch of them and love them. And, and he's fascinating. Yep. Yeah, and Nick, we talked to you all day. Well, thanks, thank, guys. thank you very much for joining us today, Nick. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Right on. Allison from Milwaukee Ghost, thank you for joining us again, too. My pleasure. Wow, you guys really covered the gamut of paranormal topics there. I got to say, that was really fun to listen to. Yeah, well, I think the thing about Nick that's great is that whenever a topic you bring up, he's got some kind of story that he can throw Something out. Something really good, too. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny that at the end of the interview, uh, I said to Nick, I said, like, oh, we were reading your book, Three Men Seeking Monsters, when my wife and I were traveling through Ireland, and then we saw a tulpa, the, the Tibetan thought form, where we saw two different things. And I was mentioning this. Uh, to Chris on Saturday. Oh, we interviewed this guy. And she's like, yeah. she's like, well, it was because we saw that weird thing that I decided to get a job at the cat care clinic. And it's because I hated the job at the cat care clinic that I decided to go to law school. So she goes, did you tell him that he's responsible for changing my life? And, and I indeed you did. <laughs> I'm like, well, not, not in those words. And I just thought it was a funny thing. She's like, yeah, your weirdo stuff is great. So... It's like the butterfly wings that set off the yeah. <laughs> tsunami on the other side of the planet, right? And I just thought it was a funny thing. I was like, yeah, I guess that guy is kind of responsible. So we're going to have Nick on again next time he has a book. And next time we go to Dallas, the big D, we're going to hunt him down <laughs> and find <laughs> him in his show home. Because he missed out because we missed him at the Paradigm Symposium because he couldn't make it this year. He had like a house emergency. Yeah. And so we missed him at the Paradigm Symposium. So we're going to have to buy him a pint yeah, definitely. As our English friends say across the pond, uh, we're going to have to buy him a pint and have a good time with Nick Redfern. And you know, when what I thought was the most interesting thing about the interview? What's that? Well, the fact that, uh, and this is, this is completely unexpected. When I said, what's the most surprising thing you think you learned about the paranormal? And he's like, mm, probably the chupacabra, that the chupacabra is yeah. real. <laughs> And I'm like, what? The chupacabra? Like, that's the last thing I'd expect somebody to say. No, that's awesome. That, and anytime anybody references El Chupacabra, El Chupacabra, it always excites me. <laughs> it does. And we'll put a link to the show notes about our episode on El Chupacabra. Um, we, we love that, that mythical beast so much that we wrote a song about him and recorded it. And we even named one of our EPs El Chupacabra. And there's a Spanish language version as well. So we're going to link to everything. You'll be able to find that othersidepodcast.com si. slash, si. slash 137. We, I can't say 137 in Spanish. Otherwise, I would. I should have watched more Sesame Street. So the thing is, I was completely baffled that he would say that. And then he goes into why he thinks that uh, the Chupacabra's got way more evidence than most of us uh, go into. So thought for the song this week, since the Chupacabra is a beast... So, Wendy, do you remember when we decided to do an, an exercise as a band and all write a song about the scorpion and the, the, the parable of the scorpion and the frog? I remember that, yes. Yes. So we came up with a song that 
well, it's a heavy rocker that does emphasize the beastly part of it. And so mm. if, if you guys are familiar with the tale of the scorpion and the frog, um, well, it's about how you can't escape your nature. And that's what this song's called, The Nature of the Beast. For listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. We're not done yet, though. <laughs> of course not, because we haven't thanked our awesome Patreon community. Yes. Love our Patreons, and we want to give a special shout-out to Ned, who's pledged us at a level where he gets his own special shout-out every single episode. Ned, we love you. Thank you, Doc. And we love all of you, Patreons. And if you want to join the community, how can they do that, Mike? You probably should just wander over to othersidepodcast.com slash donate. Now, you're going to have to wander with your fingers on a cell phone because you can't just just walk in. Right. But othersidepodcast.com slash donate is a a way you can find to be part of the special community that helps create more and more episodes of See You on the Other Side songs, podcasts, videos, and fun stuff. And we would love to give you a big hug right there.
And then all of a sudden, the the pants wedding begins all at once. 